Have you ever watched one of those movies where they save a very important detail until the very end that is so shocking and surprising that it kind of recasts the meaning of the whole movie that preceded it? Uh, in fact, it's almost to the point that you have to go back and rewatch the movie because you feel like you missed some important details along the way. Well, I, I kind of had that sense when I was watching uh, the movie Sixth Sense. I don't know if you've ever seen this, uh, but it's about a, psychology, a psychologist played by Bruce Willis, which I always thought was interesting, have the guy from Lethal Weapon play the psychologist that's helping children. But he, in this movie, is actually helping a, a young boy named Cole. And, and Cole is claiming that he sees dead people. Uh, he says that throughout. I see dead people. And so throughout the movie, everyone thinks that he is crazy, uh, that he lacks sanity. And uh, what's interesting is eventually Dr. Crow begins to be- believe this kid, uh, that he actually is telling the truth, that he does in fact see dead people. But the real shocker comes when you find out that this doctor is actually one of the dead people that he sees. Now that's a bad day. You think in your job you're helping others and you find out that you're the dead person that needs to be helped. But here's what's fascinating. When you see that and you find that out, you begin to to ask yourself, how did I miss that I have watched an hour and a half of this movie and I did not recognize that this character was a ghost throughout and it was Cole that actually was the real person and the doctor who was the ghost. Well, I think the same kind of thing happens in Jonah 4, 1 to 4. I don't think that Jonah's a ghost, but I believe there is a fact that is revealed to us in Jonah 4 that kind of recasts the whole story. You get an image of the heart of Jonah, a unique vision that gives you an understanding of what was actually going on in the heart of Jonah beginning in Jonah 1. So you'll find that Jonah here is confessing that his great fear in Jonah 1 was not the wickedness of Nineveh, but the mercy of God. Now, after the 40 days is up, Jonah preached 40 days and this city will be overturned. We find Jonah lamenting what has happened as God has shown mercy to these infamous enemies. Now, one can hardly miss the striking incongruity in these verses between the heart of God and the heart of Jonah that erupts in Jonah's prayer that we have just read. See, we're back in our No Escape series, God's Unrelenting Mercy, in the book of Jonah this morning, with longing to escape God's character. That's what we see in Jonah. Now, just to catch you up to speed, if you're just joining us, we know that 2 Kings 14 tells us that Jonah has come and he has prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel. He was a king whose reign was characterized by expanding the boundaries of Israel. So uh, it was growing. Uh, they were regaining territory that had been lost to the Syrians. Uh, it seemed as if the economy was up. Life seemed to be getting better. And yet in the midst of this, what we find is in this peaceful time of prosperity where God had rescued them from bitter affliction, Jeroboam's reign yet still was marked by the awe-inspiring reality that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This king of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, just as his father had done leading that nation into idolatry. Now that sets the backdrop here in our text this morning of God calling Jonah to prophesy against the city of Nineveh, that capital of Assyria, for their evil deeds. God punishes evildoers because he is a just God. Now just two decades later, we find that this same people, these Ninevites, would actually lead Israel into exile. 
And Jonah ran from God's will and became fish bait in Jonah chapter 2. Now the ironic sharp edge of this message, I believe, is about a pagan king quickly and fully leading his people in repentance upon hearing God's word from God's prophet. And I think that as Israel would have heard this, it should have cut Israel to the heart for refusing to repent of their evil deeds. See, Nineveh repented and God relented. How much more would God have been willing to do the same for Israel? But catch this. Jonah 4 reveals the heart of this prophet and the heart of his God. We see both of those on clear display. Now, our big idea this morning is that God's mercy ought to cause us to run to him, not from him. God's mercy, it ought to cause us to run to him, not from him. Uh, We see this in a couple of ways. Our first point is our longest. It's this. We're going to see that God's mercy actually angers Jonah in verses 1 to 4. God's mercy angers Jonah. But before we jump in, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we come before you, we are entering into the dog days of summer and we are hot and we are tired and we need to hear from you. And Father, I'm sure there are many this morning who have um, come in and it's been hard to get here. And I'm sure there are many of reasons, both inside and outside of this room, that could distract your people from your word. But Father, we need to hear from you. Father, we long to hear from you. There is no greater need that we have than to hear your voice, that voice that calls us to yourself, that voice that is merciful and good towards your children. And so, Father, we just ask this morning that you would reinvigorate our hearts, that you would reshape our lives more into the image of your Son. Father, please, this morning, let the preaching come with your power, with your unction. Father, a power that speaks of the power of the Holy Spirit. We need him and his help. It's in the great name of your son that we do pray. Amen. The first thing, again, that we see here this morning in verses 1 to 4 is this. It's that God's mercy angers Jonah. Now, we have seen unhappy prophets before, haven't we? Uh, We've even seen unhappy prophets that are unhappy to the point of desiring to die. Uh, You'll remember Moses in Exodus 34 begs God not to wipe out Israel for their idolatry And he says, please, I would rather have you blot out my name from your book than for you to actually destroy these people. Or or, or what about in 1 Kings 19.4, where we have another great prophet, Elijah. Elijah has been trying to lead his people out of of idolatry, and and it looks as though things are not going to change. They didn't change for his forefathers, and he's no better than his forefathers. And in in 1 Kings 19.4, Elijah, he prays saying, Father, I think it would be better for me to do just as my fathers did and join them in death. Now, both of these prophets ask for death because of their perceived failure. But here, take note of what angers Jonah in verses 1 to 4. It's not really failure of his ministry. Now, you'll remember that our, our verses just began, as you saw, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, that word for displeased is interesting. It actually comes from the word for evil. And it's as though it's saying that Jonah is looking at what God has just done and showing mercy to the Ninevites. And he is saying, in my eyes, this looks evil. I am displeased with it. It looks like something that is wrong, that is bad, that is not good. Now, what is it that Jonah looks on as evil or bad? Well, It is the substance of what we find in Jonah 3. God sent Jonah to preach to Nineveh saying, yet 
40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, Jonah likely, I believe, understood this to mean that God would overturn Nineveh for their wickedness in the same way that God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah before them. But the Ninevite king did the unthinkable. He surprised them. He, he repented and, relented, and God relented of his judgment on him. See, God showed startling mercy to the worst of the worst, these Ninevites. But just think about this. Jonah preached to a city of upwards of 175,000 people, souls, along with their pets, and they dressed in sackcloth and ashes. They repented of their sins. They begged for mercy, and God saved them. God relented, and revival broke out in Nineveh, which is modern-day Iraq. Imagine today. In Iraq, we get news that a revival has broken out, and everybody in Iraq has come to faith in Christ. How would we respond? We'll take note how Jonah responds. We perhaps would be very excited. And yet here, take note, Jonah is exceedingly displeased. And, And not only displeased, exceedingly displeased and angry, angry to the point of evaluating that it is better for me to die than to live and to see this. Now here you, you have to ask, what kind of prophet is this? Who sends the word out, who sees God break out revival amongst his people, and yet he is angry. Uh, Douglas Stewart and his commentator, and by the way, my son one time said that he thought when I talk about commentators that I was talking about like basketball commentators. And he was like, how do they know so much about the Bible? Uh, when I'm talking about commentators, they're like scholars who study the Word of God and write books about it and help like average guys like me and you. Um, and so that's what I'm talking about. So that commentator, not Bill Walton, uh, wrote this, Douglas Stewart, about this text. Though Jonah hardly comes across as a hero anywhere in the book. He appears especially selfish, petty, temperamental, and even downright foolish in chapter 4. You know, when you read this, you don't have to work hard to put Jonah in a bad light. He just, he looks like a bad guy, and you wonder, how could this guy be God's prophet? Just think about it. Jonah's upset because God showed mercy to these Ninevites. In fact, He didn't run in Jonah 1 because he feared what the violent Ninevites would do to him because they were so violent. That's not what drove him. He didn't run because he was lazy and he didn't want to like have to go through all the work. He ran because he feared that God would do what God did, that God would show mercy, that he would relent of the evil that he planned for them. See, Jonah did not run because he feared what the Ninevites would do to his body. He ran because he feared what God would do to his will. This prophet would rather die then watch Nineveh live. Uh, in this text, Gerhard von Rad calls this man Jonah a religious monster. It, it reminds me a, a little of, of Frankenstein when I think about it because there are a lot of different complex pieces that seem to be coming together to make up Jonah and putting him in such a bad light. If we really trace down those pieces, we see a lot that that maybe we could in some ways relate to. We wouldn't want to, or at least maybe we could think of other people that have these kind of characteristics in them. I see at least five dangerous aspects of Jonah's heart on display here that look so different from the character of God. You'll notice first that Jonah is self-centered. Did you see that? The, The reason behind the reason that Jonah is angry, 
You get what I'm saying? Like sometimes you have the reason, the stated reason why somebody is angry, and then there's a reason behind the reason that they are angry. And we see this here in Jonah. You'll notice that he's angry because God relented and showed mercy to the repentant Ninevites. But there is a reason for his anger standing even behind that reason. Did you take notice of how self-centered Jonah's prayer is? You know, our prayers can tell a lot about our souls and our hearts and what's going on in them, how we view God, ourselves, and others, and what we value. And here, Jonah, I believe, displays a lot of himself in this prayer. But you'll notice that Jonah struggles with a really bad case of what Paul Tripp calls me-ism. That is when we become too self-absorbed in ourselves. We become too self-absorbed in our hobbies or our jobs, our relationships, social media, suffering, and and even here, uh, national identity. See, meism is when the world, it really becomes about me, about what I want, what I need, what I think, my opinions, not about God. Now, I had a a story that helps illustrate this. You probably have had an experience like this if you have kids. Uh, When John was four years old, my son, uh, we went out and we were getting a a present for a kid for his birthday. And uh, of course, when you go out and you get a present, you want to get something that's really cool. And so we tried to find the biggest water gun that we could find. And we found this like super soaker 8,000. It was so big that he had to get his big brother to kind of help him hold it and had so much pressure that like he had to stand behind it so it didn't like blow him back. It was an awesome gun. In fact, we went out and tested it and then we wrapped it and we took it to this party and he was so excited about it. And then we said, okay, now John, it's time to, to give it to Miller. And it came time to give Miller this gun, and he broke down in tears and had a fit. And he said, no, this is my gun. And it was in that moment that we had to, to teach Johnny a very important lesson. And that's this. This is not your party. This is not about you. This is about Miller. You thought this gun was about you, but it was about him. And the joy of this is giving this to him. And we can laugh at John, and we can laugh at Jonah, but... How many of us, if we were honest, really look like a four-year-old with a big water gun when it comes to our lives, right? Like it is about us, it is about me, it is not about God, it is not about his glory, it is not about his people. See, here we find in Jonah, we're reminded that the Lord is the, the Lord who is sovereign over all things and good, and he is the center of our world's. You'll remember that Jonah was very me-centered in the sense that he prayed to the Lord and said, is this not what I said when I was in my country? As though the Lord may have forgotten where Jonah was coming from and what country he was in? That's why I ran, therefore please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. You hear I, me, my, all throughout that? See, Jonah evaluates everything based on how he feels rather than who God is. And he can't believe that God is still sovereign and still good because God has done something that he did not expect. And catch this, rather than bending his own heart to image God's mercy and God's will, Jonah condemns God for not imaging Jonah's heart. He wanted God to look more like him than he was willing to bend himself and change himself to look like his God. Don't miss this. Self-centered people are angry like Jonah. Self-sacrificing people look like Jesus. They are gentle, they are patient, they are kind. Uh, that's why James 1.19 that me and my boys went through this week in our devotion time says this, we need to be quick to listen, 
Slow to speak and slow to anger because the anger of God, it does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, there's a second thing that we see here. Not only is he self-centered, but Jonah is self-righteous, which is, I believe, perhaps coming from that self-centeredness. You'll notice that God showed grace to a people who did not deserve it. And Jonah is angry. Now, how quickly he has forgotten the grace shown to himself just 40 days before. Do you remember that? Back in Jonah chapter 2, remember he sinned against God, ran from God, got swallowed by a fish, was reveling in the grand and vast and lavish grace of the Lord and the mercy that was showed upon him. And here, mercy breaks out again and he'll have none of it. See, just 40 days before, Jonah was in the belly of the fish praying a prayer of praise to the God who saved his soul from death, declaring salvation belongs to the Lord. And just 40 days later, he sees the good thing that God has done in showing mercy to this people as evil. He calls it evil. How many days does it take you to forget your desperate need for God's grace in your life? Does it take 40? You know, when we forget how needy we are for the grace of God, we become proud, arrogant, and angry. You know, none in this room are saved by anything less than what Martin Luther calls an alien righteousness. That is a righteousness that comes to us from the outside, not a kind of righteousness that comes from us because we have righteousness in and of ourselves. If we're not visited with the righteousness of God, we are going to be far from God. And that righteousness comes to us from Christ and Christ alone. Don't miss this. There is something seriously wrong with our hearts when we begin to see what God does or says as evil. Do you see how self-righteous that is? Where you get to the point where you see what God has done, something good that he has done, a way that he has acted, a way that he has spoken, and you label it as evil? That is the epitome. You are in the place of self-righteousness before God and others. See, when we call good things evil, we're in a bad place. As a church, you'll notice that uh, we want to be super careful about thinking that we as a church are the only church that is actually preaching the gospel and doing good things to honor the name of Jesus Christ. And one way that we do that is by actually praying for different churches every Sunday. So we prayed for David Torres and his church uh, this Sunday. Uh, We will pray for a church every Sunday. And the reason that we do that is because we actually believe it is a good thing that God is displaying his glory and character and other churches throughout the valley. And this valley needs to be filled up with churches that magnify the glory of the name of the Lord. The reason we do that It's because we know we are not the only righteous pursuing church in the valley. We are not the standard of righteousness. We serve the king. And that's exactly what we hope that other churches are doing. We also, you'll know, notice, are are very clear that we're trying not to be self-righteous and that every Sunday we pray a prayer of confession. Why do we pray and confess our sins every Sunday? It's because we need to be reminded every Sunday that we are sinners saved by grace. Why do we need to confess every Sunday? Because it doesn't take me 40 days to forget God's grace. What about you? You know, it doesn't really take me seven days to forget God's grace. In fact, some of us will forget that we are sinners saved by grace and grace alone before we hit the parking lot. And it will show up in the conversations that happen in this room. We know that we have become self-righteous when we begin to think of others as needing Christ's righteousness a little more than we ourselves do. And the less that we understand that, the more that we will see what God says and does is evil and disappointing because we've not seen the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's causing our righteousness to pale and disappear and disappoint. 
But the more that we understand that our righteousness is a gift, the more humble and sweet we will become. But there's a third thing I see in, in Jonah, and that's it. He is displayed as a legalist here. You'll, you'll notice that Jonah sees God's lavish mercy here as evil and disappointing. Why? Well, I think Jonah's done the prophetic math. Uh, he's done the math himself. Wicked sinners need and deserve disaster. Nineveh was a wicked enemy. Israel would have been angry that Jonah's message saved Nineveh. And some would have questioned his veracity as a prophet. I mean, you know, prophets, if they prophesy and their prophecy doesn't come true, then uh, we are told that they're supposed to be stoned because um, they are not truly prophets. Their prophecies need to come true. But at its heart, Jonah is angry because he believed the Ninevites deserved the justice of God in a way that Jonah and his people did not. See, Jonah and Israel saw the speck and missed the log. His mouth was really good when it came to, handling, to handing out judgment to Nineveh, but really bad when it came to seeing what his own evil deeds deserved. Now, have you ever experienced that same kind of phenomenon where you begin to condemn someone or see someone as more guilty than yourself and you think they haven't really gotten what they deserved and, and maybe you haven't gotten what you deserved? Because you've done the... You've done the Pharisee math, the legalist math. Uh, It works out in a lot of ways. Um, Maybe, for instance, you've gotten really sick. And and what does your heart start to do in those moments? But God, I I work out. I eat right. You know, I take care of myself. Got good health insurance. Got good doctors. And I'm just looking around and there are other people that just aren't quite doing these things. And they're healthy. And it's not fair. And not only that, like, I love you, I try to serve you, like, I'm going to serve in SAF this weekend, like, I'm serving with kids, I'm changing stinky diapers for you, for the glory of your name. Other people aren't doing that, and yet I'm the one that gets sick, and it's just not right, it's just not fair, right? Or, or maybe in your heart, you've experienced that time when you're at work, you're at the job, and you've been working super hard, and you feel like you've been working as hard as others, and you're noticing that someone else has is, is, experienced favor in a way that you're not. And, and so as you're, you're looking at it, you're thinking to yourself, man, I've been so faithful at this job, and here's a person who, who doesn't love Jesus, they're less qualified, and yet it looks like God is blessing them and for them, and it's just not what? It's not fair. Why does it work out this way, God? I think that's the same kind of thing that might be going on in the heart of Jonah. You know, it feels wrong when the wicked prosper, when God does good things to those who don't seem to be as de- deserving as you are, because you're on the inside and they're on the outside. You wish that God would give the job and the sickness to someone more deserving, you know, for just desserts and all. Well, that's Jonah's thoughts here. You get out what you put in. And Jonah reminds me here of another king who comes to settle accounts in Matthew 18 that Jesus talks about. Do you remember this story? Uh, There's a a king who comes to settle accounts and he comes to, to visit a servant who owes him this vast sum. Uh, he owes him 10,000 talents, ton of money. And he tells him, I'm going to sell your wife and you into slavery. I'm taking your kids and all of your possessions to cover the debt. And this man falls before him and begs for mercy. And in that, the king forgave the whole debt. The guy was just asking, like, give me a little more time and I'll pay it off. And he says, no, look, paid in full. You're covered. You're good. You can imagine the joy that that would have caused. But later, that same servant, maybe it was 40 days, experienced the mercy of the king. 
And after he experienced the the mercy of the king, he found another fellow servant who owed him much less, a hundred denarii, much less, smaller figure. And he seized him and choked him. Think he's angry? And he said, pay what you owe. I mean, he had the guy thrown in prison. And when the king who forgave the servant found out, the king says this in Matthew 18, 32 to 35. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so also, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here, Jesus displays an important principle. Those who know grace show grace. Those who have experienced mercy become merciful. In fact, Jesus says before this in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. See, Jonah received mercy in Jonah 2 and he disdained mercy on others in Jonah 4. But there's another thing, a fourth thing that we see about his character here and that is that Jonah is a nationalist. Now, We can talk more about this next week, but we need to hit it a little bit here. Uh, You'll notice that he is happy for God to shower mercy and grace upon Israel, but not the Gentiles. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson, one pastor, writes this about this text. He says, Jonah was a nationalist of the most dangerous sort. He was the kind of one who believes not only in defending his own territory and living for the benefit of his immediate kinsmen, but who as a consequence has a spirit of antagonism towards others in hopes that God shares his attitudes. Jonah was prejudiced against others and it wasn't just about skin color, social class, or education. Here we find that it was a deeply spiritual issue that had to do with God. See, he did not see the Ninevites as created by God and for God. They were not fully human as they were. And so he saw them as less than created in God's image and after his likeness. And Jonah forgot how God had promised Abraham a seed that, would, that he would bless so that that seed could bless the nations. See, Jonah did not want to be a blessing to sinners, especially sinners who sinned against him. I mean, maybe general sinners, but these sinners particularly had sinned against him, and those were the kind of sinners that he did not want to display mercy on. See, Jonah was okay with Israelite sinners who sinned against God, but not Ninevite sinners who sinned against Jonah and his people. And Jonah appears almost blind to his own sin and the sins of Israel here. His own sins don't burden him to the point of death, do they? He's not crying out before God, God, I've sinned against you greatly. I need your mercy. He's forgotten that. He is talking all about the wickedness of these people and how God's mercy should not be shown towards others. See, God's mercy to Jonah should not be towards other sinners outside of his camp, outside of his tribe. He doesn't love anyone that is not in his tribe, and his home. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we see on full display in the heart of Jonah here. I love that our church displays a beautiful kind of diversity, and increasingly so. Uh, you might not have noticed, but we have folks uh, who are from all over. We have people who are from the Congo, Croatia, Puerto Rico, South Korea, Cambodia, Bhutan, the Philippines, southern Mississippi, and the list goes on. And much, much could be said here. 
But I, I'd point out five quick realities about ethnicity that we find here in this text. And remember, we're thinking about those inside and outside of, of the covenant people of God. But Jonah hates those who are outside of this covenant, these foreign people who are not part of the people of God in Israel. Five things really quickly just to think through. First, this. Throughout the Old Testament, God points to a future where all ethnos, all ethnicities or people are gathered to worship God in spirit and in truth. That is not a New Testament kind of development. The Old Testament is constantly looking forward to this day when every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather around the throne of God worshiping as a single people. Second, there really is only one divide in humanity that the New Testament is concerned with. There is one divide that we need to concern ourselves with, and that's this. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, it is bad news. It is the worst news ever. If you are in Christ, it is the best news ever. It changes and shapes who you are and your identity. It shapes you more radically than anything genetically shapes you according to God and how he sees you. Third, Christians are called to love not only their brothers and their neighbors, but even their enemies. If you read the New Testament, if you read the Bible, what we are told, we are given this grand vision of what it looks like to image God. It is that we love not only our our local church, not only our brothers and sisters in Christ, not only our neighbors, but even our enemies. Now, let me be clear. Those loves are fleshed out in different ways in the Bible in such a way that I am called to love my local church in a different and distinct way than I am called to love my neighbor or someone who is a non-Christian. But the, the, the principle is the same throughout, that I am called to love and love like God loves. What that looks like, the Bible lays out. Fourth, the New Testament church is marked by a new covenant with an ethnically diverse people. The New Testament church, it is marked by a new covenant with a ethnically, an ethnically diverse people. If you look at the churches in the New Testament, they are diverse. And the Bible is pushing us towards understanding that we are a new people gathered in Christ. Fifth, Revelation tells us the future new heavens and new earth will include people from every tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around the throne of Christ, worshiping as one people forever. That is what we have a vision of in the Bible. So when we look at Jonah... And what Jonah and his heart is, is bleeding here right now, it looks nothing of the heartbeat of God for the nations and of the heartbeat of God of who his people are. But there's a fifth and last thing that we see that is scary about the heart, monster-like of the heart of Jonah. It's that he thinks that he knows better than God. Did you catch what he says in his prayer in verse 2? Interesting statement. Oh Lord, is not this what I said? Did you forget like when I was talking to you what I said? This is a really important point, God. Do you forget things? Now, you know all things, but do you forget things? When I was yet in my country, do you remember that? I mean, can you imagine the arrogance of this coming as a prophet before God and asking him if he remembers what you said, as though what you said had anything more important to do than what he said? See, Jonah sought to counsel God. I'm just wondering, do you ever uh, pray trying to counsel God about what is best? I'm not talking about praying and dreaming of a future that you're, you're asking God to help you step into but I'm talking about like, hey God, I know this has already taken like place and these are past events, but could we just hit replay and let me talk to you about how this should have gone? Doesn't that always make you happier in your heart towards God? No, it makes you bitter, doesn't it? 
Well, you were bitter when you started and you didn't realize it. You were already calling God into question, not trusting Him for what He's done. See, here we find that Jonah is hitting replay and he's saying, God, this all went south because you didn't listen to me. And my plans are better than your plans. My wisdom is better than your wisdom. Catch this, the less God-centered we become, the more self-centered, self-righteous, legalistic, tribal, arrogant, angry, quick to speak and slow to listen, we will become. The faster we will run from God, not to God. In fact, did you catch how hard Jonah's heart had become? Notice the heart of his prayer. The heart of his prayer. This is amazing. The the, the arrogance and the hard-heartedness that we find here. Take note of how different God is and what Jonah communicates about God. He has great theology. And yet, it's like he responds in a way that he shouldn't to the beauty of the thing that he describes. You'll notice in verse 2 what he says. And it's, it's Jonah himself declaring the heart of God and not understanding it. Notice. Second, our second main point, this. That God's mercy should cause us to run to God, not from God. But what does Jonah do? Look, at me, look with me again at verse 2. Let's just read this again. This is what it says. It says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my uh, country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, here's what he knew, that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I don't know about you, but When you read that, what does that make you want to do? Jonah ran from God. He ran to Tarshish in verse 2 because he knew that God is a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting of disaster. And he knew that and so he ran from God. Now, how did Jonah know this? Well, he knew because he knew God's word and God's word says this all over the place. In fact, the first time that we find Jonah speak of this or use these words or we find these words in the, the Old Testament uh, come to us in Exodus 34. Joel 2.13 quotes this verbatim, but I think that Exodus 34 is the first time that we find these words put together in the Old Testament. And I find it interesting because the context is eerily similar. When Moses there has carried the Ten Commandments up the mountain, or down the mountain for meeting with God, Israel is worshiping a golden calf already. He can't even get down the mountain with the laws before they've broken the first one. And it's there that we find that God wants to wipe out Israel for their sins. He wants to start over with Moses. But Moses intercedes for Israel. And he tells God that he would rather die and be blotted out of his book than to have God wipe out Israel. And God relents of wiping them out. Now in Exodus 34, 6-7, this is what Moses says. You can look there later with me, but in Exodus 34, 6-7, this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That should sound familiar. You'll remember that these are the same words that Jonah speaks back to God 
After Nineveh has just repented at the preaching of Jonah, and God has relented of disaster towards them. Now, Moses, in the same situation, has just called to God and asked Him to relent of wiping out Israel. He was fearful that Israel would become like Sodom and Gomorrah and be wiped out. And he steps in and he asks for God's mercy and God relents. So in both cases, we have a relenting of God of a destruction that is coming. But here, Jonah, you'll notice there, Moses wants to lay down his life to save Israel. Jonah wants to lay down his life because he is bitter over God saving Nineveh and he wanted them to die. And how quickly Jonah has forgotten the mercy that he experienced in the belly of that fish and the glorious prayer that he prayed just 40 days before. And catch this, his theology was so good. He is quoting Exodus 34 where God showed mercy to Israel. But here, did you catch that? He actually turns the beauty of God's character into a complaint against God. And how can it ever be bad that God is gracious, giving good things freely to his children? How could it ever be evil for God to withhold punishment on the guilty or that He would be slow to anger and patient with sinners? How could it be negative that God would abound in His steadfast love and covenant faithfulness to His people? Who would be angry with God for relenting from disaster and rescuing rebels? Well, I've got to turn. I actually think that someone who takes God's justice could easily become angry and confused like Jonah. If you're taking God's justice seriously, this could make you sad and angry and confused. And I don't think that Jonah necessarily even gives us the answer. I mean, imagine that you have watched Nineveh destroy your city and kill your family and take your wife and children and carry you off into exile as a slave. In other words, imagine that you can experience real, palpable injustice in this world that is only lamentable, that there is not really an answer that you have in this life. And and, and you would, I bet, in that moment, think to yourself, is God just? And if He is not just, then that means that He is not good. And justice means that punishment must be made for sins. That is right. That is good that justice is done for sins, especially horrific sins. And Jonah asks, how can God forgive sinners and still be just and good? That seems evil to him. That's a good question. See, the problem is that Jonah didn't also ask another important question, a more important question, a question along the same lines, and that's this. How could God forgive sinners like Israel? I mean, if we're being fair, Israel was wicked as well. The only difference here, I believe, is that Jonah thinks that because he is a tribal man with a tribal God, that his God should be for him and against anyone outside without reference to God's sovereignty actually reigning throughout the whole earth. He has a small vision of God, and therefore he thinks that he can be innocent and his people can be innocent before God. And he has not started to ask the even more important question, is how is anybody going to be safe before a holy and righteous God? See, Jonah sees Yahweh as tribal, who is for those inside the tribe and against those who are outside of the tribe, regardless of their sins. That's the way the other gods of the nations worked. But in Jonah, God claims to be sovereign over all peoples and free to show mercy to whom he 
will. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Just think about this for a moment. Here is the real problem. If he really was reading Exodus 34 well, he would have finished it out. You'll notice that there that not only is he merciful and forgiving and gracious and full of steadfast love, but notice that it also says that he will by no means clear the guilty, but visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. How can you both forgive iniquity but not clear the guilty? See, someone has to pay for the iniquity for it to be just. You get this. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I had a friend... um, and uh, I, was, I was probably about five, and he found this old house that he thought was abandoned, and underneath the house, it was like really this big space that you could crawl into, and there was this staircase that you could get behind, and you could start chiseling out sort of the bricks that were under it. And, and, and he said, this is great, there's probably treasure back there, and so we should start chiseling these out. And so we would go back there day by day, and we're chiseling it out, and I'm excited about the treasure that my friend has promised me is at the other end, and yes, I was gullible. And, um, and so we, we did this, and one day the guy comes out, and he catches us, right? And then he tells my parents, and of course I was in a lot of trouble, and it was expensive to fix, and, um, and my parents, I, I told them I'm sorry I didn't know, and they actually like disciplined me and forgave me all at the same time, but there was forgiveness that was had, And when they forgave me, um, you know what didn't go away? The bill. Like they still had to pay the guy. And that's the reality of the nature of justice. It's not like justice evaporates the bill. Like the bill's still there. Uh, For me, it went away because my parents covered the cost. And it's the same way with the justice of God. If God is going to show mercy and he is not going to ascribe guilt to you, it must be dealt with or, or he is no longer just and no longer good. Well, this is the beautiful point that I believe Paul picks up in Romans 3. Paul addresses the question of how God can show mercy to sinners and still be just and still be good. He spends the first two chapters showing that all of humanity is guilty before God and deserving of his righteous and just wrath. We are all together guilty. We are all together under the wrath of God. Unless God does something magnificent and startling to save us that is not done by us because we have nothing to bring to a holy and righteous God that he needs. Romans 3, 22 to 26 explains this. Here's what Paul says. The righteousness of God, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all peoples, all ethnos, everyone have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift, not of works, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, that He is right and good, Jonah. He's not doing evil. He is a good God. He is right in all that He does. And it was to show that His righteousness at the present time so that He might be what? Just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what is the answer to Jonah who is asking, is this mercy that God has shown evil? What is the short answer to that question? It's one word. It's propitiation. Now I know that's a big word. And I don't want to confuse you. 
But it's an important word. It's a beautiful word. That word propitiation is the word that speaks of the nature of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Jesus came as a perfect sacrifice to die in our place on the cross to absorb and assuage the wrath of God that every one of us deserved. It was on that cross that he took the penalty that you deserved in himself so that you might be found innocent before God. He stood in your place and took your sin. And as a result, he gifted you the righteousness of God and took your unrighteousness so that you could be a new creation in Christ. Propitiation is the the answer to Jonah's question of whether or not God is evil and forgiving radical sinners. Praise God for propitiation, for this big word that is beautiful. See, is it good for God to forgive really evil people? Propitiation says our Heavenly Father paid the price of our guilt Himself through His Son so that it is very good for God to show mercy because He has paid the price. He is both just and the justifier. He is not only still good, He is gooder than good that we could have imagined. Christian, here's what propitiation means for you. God's not angry with you anymore. Let that sink in. God is not out to get you in Christ He is not out to trick you. He is not out to harm you. He is not angry with you anymore in Christ. His infinite wrath was against you. It has been averted in such a way that his infinite joy rests on you in Christ. What a change. What a change that God has wrought for you. Now here's what that means practically. If God's not angry with you anymore, you don't have to be angry anymore either. Do you hear that? You don't have to be angry. God is pleased with us in Christ. God is pleased with you in Christ so you can be radically merciful with others. You don't have to be self-centered. You can be Christ-centered. You don't have to be self-righteous. You get to receive Christ's righteousness. You don't have to be legalistic, judging others to make yourself feel better. You can be merciful because you have received mercy from the just judge who is both just and justifier. You don't have to be tribal or a racist. You are free to love your local church and even your enemies because Jesus came to love and save a lost and dying world. And you don't need to be arrogant thinking that you know better than God. You can humble yourselves before the wise plan of Christ and the wise man of Christ, Jesus Christ, trusting Him in all the things of life. All the things. That means that you don't have to be angry anymore because God is not angry with you. God's mercy towards us ought to cause us to want to run to show mercy to others. It should cause us to want to run to God, not from God. If you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, let me just close by just encouraging with this. God is a just God who judges sin. He would not be good if he did not judge sins justly. He wouldn't be judged And he wouldn't be justice if he didn't judge sins. God is angry over our sins against each other and ultimately himself. God has anger towards sin. It is right that he is your creator is angry when we sin against others and himself. And we deserve God's infinite wrath. In fact, Matthew 12, 41 says that we are actually more guilty than the people of Nineveh's day. Because we have received one greater than Jonah, Jesus Christ, in whom we see the very righteousness of God offered to those who put their faith in Him. 
I just want to encourage you this morning that you don't have to be under the wrath of God. That you can have the joy of God upon you. The forgiveness of God. He wants you to be in Christ. And if you repent and put your faith in Him today, you can become a child of God. I'd love you to just talk to me. I'm sure another Christian in this room would love to talk to you today about that. But don't leave this room without talking to someone about what it looks like to become a child of God.